15 again today. We're continuing our series on the parables that Jesus taught, the parables that Jesus gave to us. And in fact, we're in the same uh, chapter that Luke, or sorry, that Joe preached from last week. And so just to give you an idea of what's going on here so that we can better understand the parable, the setting for Jesus teaching this parable in the Gospel of Luke is he is eating a meal at one of the leaders of the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were a group of super religious people, super religious Jews in Jesus's day. They took um, the history of the Jewish people in the Old Testament continually turning idols to continue turning away from God as, as something they wanted to run as far away from as possible. But in running as far away from unfaithfulness and possible, as possible, they fell into the other errors that human beings are often uh, make, and that is what we call legalism. In other words, they said, okay, if, if our ancestors failed to follow the law of God, we're going to just add more rules and more laws so that we never even get close to failing the law of God, right? And so we pick up this story of these super legalistic, super religious people in Jesus' day. If you were a Jewish person in the first century, you would look to the Pharisees as the leader of your faith, right? But not only that, they were pretty prominent, often pretty wealthy. In fact, Jesus, in just a couple chapters, critiques them for that. They were lovers of money. Uh, these were people who who um, seemed to lead the faith, not just because they thought it was the right thing to do, but because of the prominence and wealth that it got for them. So that's kind of the background here. And we're in this meal, and Jesus gives them three lessons. The first one is, this man comes, and it's on the Sabbath, and he needs healing. And so you see, the religious leaders, these Pharisees, um, had, had sought to follow the strict letter of the law, by even adding their own rules and regulation to it. And what happened was, instead of making them more humble, because they realized how far from God's perfect law they, they actually are, instead of it making them more kind, because they've seen how God has been gracious to them, therefore they can be gracious to others, instead what it made them was proud. We are the elite of the elite when it comes to following God's law. We are the holies of the holies. And therefore it made them unkind. And Jesus critiques that. You see, this man comes for healing, but it's the Sabbath. Jesus can't do work on the Sabbath, so Jesus calls them out for this. These same religious leaders who, if their own animal fell into a ditch, would, of course, drag it out. They don't want to lose the money from an injured or abandoned animal. Of course, they would do the work to pull it out of that ditch, but they won't stand for the healing of a human being. There's something very twisted in that. They're their religious exercise and their religious so-called faithfulness up to this point had actually made them unkind and uncaring to their fellow human being. And so Jesus critiques that, but then he goes on. He also noticed that they're jockeying for positions of prominence. They want to sit close to the, to the, to the head of the table so that they can be viewed as high in esteem. And so last week, Joe taught that parable where Jesus critiques them and says, don't look for honor, instead and therefore be embarrassed because you jockeyed for this position of prominence and then the, the um, person who invited you put you in a low position. Don't do that, right? So Jesus is critiquing their pride and their jockeying for power, which is the same problem. Instead of looking out for those around them, instead of viewing other people as maybe more important than themselves, they're trying to put themselves first. That same problem, their religious experience 
had not made them more kind or more loving. Instead, it made them proud and cruel. And he continues, he then critiques the person who invited him to this meal. And he says, listen, when you give a banquet, don't invite people who will then be able to invite you to their banquets. Don't invite the rich and the powerful and the prominent. Instead, you got to invite, and I want to read this because this phrase becomes important in Luke chapter 14. He says um, in uh, in verse 13, it says, but when you give a feast, invite, and pay attention to these words, the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And so Jesus' point seems to be, don't try to put yourself first. Instead, by humbling yourselves, by putting other people as more important than yourselves, by seeking to do good to those who can't repay you, your heavenly Father will see you and he will reward you. And that reward will be so much greater than any reward that you can have here right now on earth. That's his main critique. And that's the kind of background going into this this last parable that he gives him. You see, when Jesus said that uh, you will be blessed for you will be repaid at the resurrection, one of the people at that table spoke up. And in verse 15, he says, when one of those reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat the bread in the kingdom of God. And that's where we pick up today. So I want you guys to stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're going to read Jesus's response in his final parable in this setting, starting with verse 16. So it says this, But he, being Jesus, but he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet, and he invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the cities, and bring in the poor, crippled, and blind, and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges, and compel people to come. Come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who invited shall taste my banquet. You may be seated. Uh, Let me pray before we dive into this together. Father, I pray that the message of your son's parable becomes clear to us, that by it you would sink the message with, through your spirit down into our hearts in a way that transforms us. Help us pay close attention to your word. Let's be convicted where we need to be convicted. Give thanks where we should give thanks, and let it make us to be more like your son, Jesus. And it's his name we pray and come to you. Amen. So what is going on? What is Jesus trying to say through this parable, given all the background we heard, given the words we heard just now? And so I want to make a couple observations as we go through this. And this, the first one is this. God is generous. If you want to ask what this parable is about, it is about the generosity of God. 
I want to first point out to you what I told you to remember earlier in the reading, that when Jesus told the man um, who, who, to, who to invite to his banquets, he said to invite who? Well, in verse 13, to invite the crippled, the lame, the blind, and the poor. Why? Because they cannot repay him. Now, who does Jesus say the master who invites the banquet in this parable invites? Well, after his intended guests don't come, who does he invite? Well, we see these words repeated again. And so he says uh, in verse um, uh, in verse 21, then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, and blind, and lame. Now, in this parable, we, we understand already that the master who, who puts together this banquet, this great feast, inviting guests in, is supposed to be the father. And we see that this banquet is supposed to show us this reality that at the end of time, God will set everything that was broken right, and he will hold this huge feast, this huge banquet to celebrate, to celebrate the restoration of all things and the gathering of God's people where there will be no more sorrow or death or shame or disease anymore. And to celebrate it, it's described as this giant feast where we come and celebrate and feast on the goodness of God. Right? It's an incredibly gracious and good thing. But notice at the end of this parable, who are the ones invited? Well, it turns out the only ones who get to come are not those in the first invitation, but the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the naked, right? In other words, those who cannot give back to God, those who cannot give back to the banquet host. Now, in this story, there is kind of this idea that he invites guests first, but what we understand is this parable is pointing to a greater reality, and that's this. Who gets to enjoy the feast and the goodness of God in the days to come? Who gets to enjoy eternal life filled with joy and happiness? No more disease or pain or death or heartache. Only those who are unworthy of it. Why? Because the scripture says that there's no one worthy of it. That's what the Pharisees weren't getting. That's why when when this man at the table answers Jesus and blessed are those who get to eat at the feast of the kingdom, right? Blessed are those. The assumption is that's going to be me, right? The assumptions of the Pharisees are that's going to be us. Why? Because we're so amazing. We're so holy. We're so righteous. And Jesus's message from the beginning is that there is no one holy. There's no one righteous. There is no one who does good. And even the good that you do as a, as a human being is so corrupted by selfishness, right? Remember the critique to the man who, who uh, was hosting the banquet? He, he was hosting a banquet. He was giving food to people. Surely that's a good thing, right? But why did he do it? Well, he did it because he expected to receive a reward from that to be invited back, to be invited by others and to gain positions of prominence. Even the best actions that human beings ever do, the Bible says that they are corrupted. The Bible puts it this way, that even our good, the good works that we do are filthy rags. Now, I'm not going to go into that verse and preach it, but the idea of the filthy rag there is something incredibly unclean and disgusting and something that contaminates you. 
So even the best that humanity ever has to offer is contaminated with selfishness and sin. There's nothing a fallen human being does out of the goodness of their heart. It is always at least a little bit corrupted with selfish intentions seeking to gain their own good. And that's the state that we're in. So what does that mean? Well, that means that there's nothing we can offer to God. Here's the interesting thing. What can human beings offer to God anyways? We were created by God, and by our very creation, by that very act, we are, oh God, glory and honor through our whole lives. Everything we do should be given to God in glory and honor and thanks for this gift of life he has given. So even if we give God uh, that, we're just giving him what we already owe. But the scripture communicates we don't even give God that basic thing. We don't even give God what we already owe because every breath that we take is given to us by the grace of God. Through his power, we are allowed to not only be created, but to continue existing. That is a gift of God. At the very least, we owe him honor and worship and praise. But the Bible says instead what we give him is rebellion and hatred, and continually spurning his laws and regulations, which are, were originally given to us for our own good anyways, right? And so who gets to come to the feast? Well, if only those who deserve it, if only those who have something to offer God can come, then nobody gets to come. And so the first thing you need to see is this parable tells us the incredible, overwhelming generosity of God. The fact is that the very fact that God will host a feast where he will include human beings who get to live with him forever is already a surprising and overwhelming act of grace. Not a single one of us as human beings deserve that. We do not, we have not earned that, right? But then it goes further, right? So who gets invited? And I think what you see, yes, the Bible describes, okay, you got the poor, you have the crippled, you have the lame, you have all these people invited, but then they come and there's still room at the banquet. So who does he go to? He goes out into the hedges and the fields and to invite strangers, those who didn't formally know God. So who gets invited to this feast? And the message in this parable is this, everyone gets invited. Why? Because God's generosity is infinite. His generosity applies towards all human beings. We see this in the gospel. Jesus came. He became a human being. He humbled himself. The son of God, although still God, became a human being. He lived through all the indignities of living in a fallen world, even though he never fell himself. Even though he never sinned, he took the punishment of sin. And in that process of taking the punishment, our punishment, he took all of our sin from us and put it on him. He never committed one sin, and yet he took our sin, and he put it on himself, and he took that punishment in our place. And what do we get in return? He gives us his perfect life and righteousness, so that if you put your faith in Jesus, when God looks at you, he sees the perfect life of his son, Jesus. This is for all human beings who put their faith in Jesus. God's generosity is overwhelming, and it is for everyone, right? That's the beautiful truth of this parable so far. But then it keeps going, right? 
not only is God's generosity surprising and overwhelming and infinite so that it's for everyone, it is also unconquerable. It cannot be stopped. It cannot be thwarted. So what is going on with this banquet? Well, at this time, what would happen is that the person who was putting on the banquet, whatever the occasion may be, um, they would have invited guests and heard back from them, okay, are you coming to the banquet? Are you coming to this banquet? Are you coming to this banquet? When he heard back and heard they were coming, he would then prepare the food, right? So that you know, how much do I need to prepare? If any of you who have ever put on a party probably knows this pain, especially when you have friends and family who are notorious for not telling you if they're coming, right? That's me, I apologize. Uh, uh, it's, it's frustrating, right? You're like, how many do I need to prepare? Do I need to prepare for five people or 50? I don't know, right? But in this time, they would have gotten their approval. They said, okay, we will come. And then they don't come. The invited guests that he was preparing for did not come. But what happens? Does that, does, well, that's it. My guests aren't coming. I guess we have to call it, right? I've, I've been there a couple times with youth ministry where you have like, oh, yeah, we're coming, we're coming. But they haven't actually checked their calendar with their parents yet. Turns out everyone had an event that day right? So they don't come. It's like, well, I guess we got to call it at this point. No, he doesn't call it. Instead, what does he do? He goes out and finds guests. God's generosity cannot be thwarted by the sinful actions of human beings. Yes, evil in this world is incredibly evil. It can accomplish great damage and great pain. But the truth of the scripture is no matter how dark it gets, no matter how evil the actions of human beings, no matter how seemingly powerful the evil are, God's plan for generosity and grace and salvation will not be stopped. And so this is the main thing. When you look at the story, what you see is the overwhelming generosity of God to all people, the unconquerable, unthwartable generosity of God for the salvation of his people. But also in this, you see a warning. You see, who was he talking to? Let's remember that. He was talking to the Pharisees, one of the leaders of the Pharisees, and a person at this dinner, at this dinner, at this banquet, who thought, surely I'm going to be in the kingdom. And isn't it good? Aren't all blessed who go into the kingdom? Jesus, though, gives him, a, in his kindness, a warning. And what is that warning? The warning is, don't reject my generosity, <laughs> right? Let, let's look closely at the excuses of why these people come. And it's interesting, the Bible calls them excuses. But if you're reading it kind of quickly the first time, you might not notice how sad these excuses actually are. So let's look again at what each person says, why they can't come. Remember, they were already invited. They already said they were going to come, Right? That's, that's why this, this banquet host, that's why he had the food ready. He went and called them when it was all ready, and this is what they say. Um, but they all alike began to make excuses. Verse 18, the first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Okay, at first glance, you're like, okay, he's got to do business. He's got to take care of what he needs to get done. Here's the thing, though. He already bought the field. He already bought the field, and he's saying, oh, I bought it, so I need to go see it now. 
Why? Why do you need to see it? Why can that not wait until after the banquet? The thing is, the excuses, as we will see, that these people give aren't actually good <laughs> excuses. He bought the field. Why does he need to go see it? Let's see if the second person's excuse is even better. The second one said this, um, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excuse. Once again, he already bought the oxen. Are you meaning to tell me you bought five oxen and you haven't checked them out to see if they're healthy and fine already? You bought them and you're like, okay, now I need to go see them after it's already been paid. What are you going to do that can't wait until after the banquet? The third one, to some of us, might sound like it makes sense. Okay, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Well, he just got married. They're enjoying their honeymoon, right? And in Jewish law, there is a, a sort of precedent where uh, if a man is newly married for a whole year, they don't do military service. They're supposed to dedicate that first year to that marriage. But here's the thing. That doesn't exclude all social functions. You're not supposed to, okay, I'm married, so then I guess we can't go out and see anyone else forever. We're just locked up in our home. No, it, it, this excuse isn't even really an excuse. What do you mean you just got married and you can't come? Bring her as well. Like, why? What's your excuse here? There's no excuse. All of the excuses are kind of sad. There's no excuse to miss this banquet. The overwhelming generosity, and yet these people are turning that down for a lie. And the Bible says that there, there's no good excuse. What's this parable trying to tell us? Well, the parable is trying to tell us is, no matter what reason you think you have for not turning your life to Jesus, for not entering into the kingdom, for not accepting God's generosity from the gospel, they're not good excuses, right? After this, you will tell another parable about the cost of discipleship, where Jesus warns people, hey, to follow me is costly. Make sure you make sure before you do follow me, you count that cost. But before that parable, he's, he's kind of modifying that. He's getting them ready because here's, here's the overall lesson. No matter the cost you count, though, when you compare it to what you gain, it's not even worthy of comparing, right? Uh, C.S. Lewis often has, has a phrase that I often like to use where he compares it to our problem as human beings is not so much that we have too great of desires, and those desires lead us into sin and rebel against God. C.S. Lewis goes, actually, our problem is our desires are too weak. We're like a kid who's content making like uh, buildings out of the mud of his backyard when he could be having a holiday by the sea, making sandcastles on the shore and enjoying the waves lapping, lapping in. The idea is this, that whatever we find pleasure and contentment and happiness in the moment right now, that's not even worthy of comparing to the ultimate joy and satisfaction that we will find in God if we just accept his grace from the gospel. That's the message of this parable. And he is warning these Pharisees because these Pharisees, despite all the pretension that they are this holy, righteous people, they have missed the gospel. They have missed that they can't do anything to earn God's favor. They've missed that all that they're working in this life, these positions of prominence that he critiqued, the money that he will critique, the, the gaining rewards now in this lifetime when it compares to the reward they could get if 
eternally if they just humbled themselves, repented of their sins, and received the gospel. It's not even worthy of comparison. That is the message of this parable, that nothing in this lifetime is better than what you get for receiving Jesus. Don't get me wrong. There is a cost, right? Many of you, I'm sure, have had to face this cost on yourself. When you look and you say, okay, if I follow Jesus, well, that means that I might lose friendships, right? As many as, now, in this culture, being a Christian has been easy for a long time. Yes, there are challenges, always, but comparatively, it has been pretty easy. It has not cost much, but more and more, you will see that cost increase, and it will catch up to the rest of the world throughout history, because the rest of the world throughout history, to be a Christian sometimes meant to be disowned by your family. To profess your faith in Christ meant that your family, who are not Christians, said you're no longer ours. They kick you out, you lose your inheritance, your livelihood, your home, and your family. Sometimes it even costs spouses. You look at Christians who became a Christian later in life, their spouse goes, oh, I don't know about that. I didn't sign up for this Jesus thing. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a prominent Jew, or I'm a prominent Hindu, or I'm a prominent whatever the case may be. You're not the same person anymore, and so they lose their spouse. Following Jesus could cost you that. Following Jesus could cost you your job. In some cultures, that is often how they marginalize Christians so they couldn't gain places of power and prominence. Christians have been barred from certain types of jobs. This probably hits you harder if you're a high schooler, right, and you're dreaming big about your plans for your career and for your future. Following Jesus might mean you can't follow your dream career path. Or if you do follow it, maybe you can't get the promotions and the place of respect that you want to have because following Jesus isn't accepted in that career path. Following Jesus may mean a life, this also hits younger people hard sometimes, it may mean a life of singleness. Right? There are less and less Christians in this culture, which means there are less and less Christians to marry. Right, And so I've been with many people who are like, I look around and there's, if I'm going to date someone, I have to date someone who's either not a Christian or doesn't seem to take their faith seriously. What do I do? Do I continue dating? Do I date them and get married and then try to win them for Christ? Or do I do what the Bible says and don't get married to an unbeliever because it will only cause heartache? Following Jesus can be costly, but here's the truth of the matter. No matter what price you pay, the Bible also says that your reward makes it unworthy of even comparison. That doesn't mean that the cost is somehow easy. That doesn't mean that the cost isn't often painful in this lifetime. All it means is that the reward will be so overwhelmingly great that once all is said and done and when you're looking back you will not have it any other way not only makes up for what's coming but it makes you glad for all the sacrifices you have paid as Jesus gives you this gift of grace right that's the truth of this parable that the that the reward of the gospel which is not something we can earn but it's something given to us is worthy of any sacrifice we have to pay. No matter what we have to do to follow Jesus, it is worth it when we enter into eternal life with our Father.
And so what do I want you to think about this week as you're thinking on this parable from Jesus? What I want you to think about is this. What does it cost me to follow Jesus right now? And be honest about it. What is painful about following Jesus right now? Is it costing you relationships? Is it costing you your career or money? Costing you time, your dreams? What does following Jesus cost you? Because it costs each of us something, right? And when you think about what it costs you, I want you to return to the scripture and remember that the gospel is the free gift of God. So no matter what it may cost you, the reward that's coming is so much greater. And if you are not a Christian and you're looking in and you're saying, I don't know about this Jesus thing. Like if, if I follow Jesus right now, if I proclaim to be a Christian, I know a lot of people who are going to hate me for it. Friends I used to have will not be happy with me. Family will not be happy with me. I'm not even sure if I can keep my job because my boss has expressed his extreme dislike of Christians and all that Christians believe. It can be costly, but the reward is so much greater. The feast that you are invited to come and taste is so much more satisfying than anything you can taste right now in this lifetime. More than temporary success, more than temporary wealth, more than temporary place of prominence. Every relationship you lose, you gain a thousand times better in the kingdom to come. Everything we think we give up now, God will overwhelmingly give back and more in the kingdom to come. And that's where I want to end this today. All right? So reading once again from this parable, at the end, it says here, And the, the master said to his servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come into my house, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of the men who are invited shall taste of my banquet. But here's the thing. All are invited to taste of the banquet as a free gift of God. You don't have to bring anything to earn God's favor for it. In fact, you can't. There's nothing to give. But all are invited to come and to taste. So that's where I'm going to leave us. Father, I want to thank you uh, for your word and for your generosity. And I want to thank you for your gift of grace and your son, Jesus. And I pray right now that we who are Christians, you would restore us the joy of our salvation, that we would remember once again the incredible sacrifice that your son has paid for us. And I pray that any of here who don't, haven't yet received the gospel, if they're waiting because they, they're looking at the cost and they see how much it costs them, I pray that you show them the overwhelming reward that is waiting for them, Father. And I pray that your spirit leads them into the joy of grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.